The reading for today's sermon comes from the book of Acts, chapter 6, beginning at verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Let's pray, shall we? Merciful Father, open our eyes that we may see glorious things in your word. Shape our hearts so that we are receptive to receive that which you would speak to us. Make us a more holy bride fit for our groom, your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. For we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Please take a seat. (coughs) And let me add my welcome to that given earlier to those of you who are visiting us today, particularly the friends and family of the Byrams. It is wonderful, really wonderful for us to have you with us. We're so glad you could make it uh, to join us here today. The subject on which I'm proposing to speak to you today is not one I'm looking forward to. I think I can say with some confidence that I would rather talk about almost anything I can think of than what I have to talk to you about today. It's one of the benefits, actually, of just working through books of the Bible one chunk at a time contiguously. We get whatever the living God serves up to us. And um, I am sorry, in a sense, that the Byram family friends should have to hear this, although I, I do think that if we can get past the emotional shock of what I want to talk about, you will find some encouragement here, some significant encouragement. Because the subject I need to talk to you about today is the subject of excommunication. As it happens, we talked about this in our Bible and theology class last week. You can listen to the recordings, actually. They're on the church website. We're working through a book uh, by John Frame, theologian John Frame. And we got to his chapters on the doctrine of the church. And he writes, quote, In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says that a church member guilty of serious sin should be cast out of the church, comma, excommunicated, end of quote. Which is quite a good summary. Though, of course, it leaves a few questions unanswered. Uh, These are questions that the young people lost no time in asking me. First, well, what is excommunication? Second, what's its purpose? And then third, of course, the big one, well, for what sins? What would you have to do? That's probably the wrong way of framing it, but what would have to be done in order for this to be the appropriate course of action? And so briefly... What excommunication is, firstly, 
is the final stage in a formal process of church discipline. It might be defined as the formal judicial declaration by the elders of a church on behalf of the whole congregation that a particular individual who formally professed faith in Christ, formerly was well, has been baptized and has been a member, a communicant member of that church, is now living in a way which demonstrates consistent lack of faith and repentance in Christ. And so they're cut off from communion, hence excommunicated, cut off from the Lord's table. You, you can see a, a partial parallel with baptism, or perhaps an anti-parallel with baptism. It's not, excommunication is not a sacrament, but nonetheless, in baptism, we make a formal, public, liturgical statement that this person belongs to Christ. They're part of the family of God. They belong among the people of God and are blessed by him. In excommunication, we make a formal, sorrowful affirmation with tears in our eyes that this person who once occupied such a status no longer does, and that they're not a member of the people of God, that they're not saved, that they're not living in a way which is consistent with Christian faith. So that's what excommunication is. So why would you do this? And it would be very easy to misunderstand this as some kind of medieval Catholic throwback or kind of legalistic approach to the Christian life. That is not the purpose of excommunication. You can highlight three different strands biblically which together serve to show why this is so, actually so important. The first is towards the individual themselves. It's an act of love. It's the loudest megaphone we have to say, brother, sister, this is not acceptable. We love you. We want above all else for you to be restored to Christ and his people. And you are not. You are not. And this can't carry on. And the goal, therefore, is the restoration of that person. Even after somebody has been excommunicated, the goal is for them to repent. The goal is that they should come back. And therefore the grounds of it need to be stipulated in such a way that it's obvious what this person would have to do in order to begin that process. So towards the person themselves. Secondly, towards the church. We want to protect the church. As elders, we have a responsibility to do that. Some sins are quite damaging, destructive to others in the church. Of course, there's also, I, mean, I hesitate to use this word, but there is a, uh, if I say deterrent, that's not quite right. It's a let all Israel see and take warning. Isn't there? To quote somebody. And, and frankly, there is also a, and this is one of the positive pastoral fruits of thinking about this. There is a sense of reassurance. Let me explain what I mean by this. Every couple of months, somebody, normally a man, normally in his early 20s, comes to me deeply troubled that sins that he's wrestling with are indicative of lack of true faith in Christ. And they're normally always pretty much the same sins. And normally, I'm trying to reassure him that, well, look, <laughs> the people I'm really worried about are not the folks who are coming to their pastor to confess this particular issue, right? Uh, we see in you genuine faith, genuine repentance, and a genuine sorrow for this sin. But there's another way of giving assurance to such a person. There is a liturgical element to assurance. 
You heard Pastor Shaw earlier declare, in the name of Jesus, your sins are forgiven. How do you know your sins are forgiven? Well, you heard it. You're here. How do you know you're welcome at the Lord's table? Because in about two and a half hours, I'm joking, in about 40 minutes, you're going to eat at the Lord's table. How do you know you're one with Christ? Because you're going to take him into yourself. Can you see? Like, let me turn it around. I promise you, I promise that if we as a session discovered that you were living, any one of you, in such a way that was inconsistent with Christian faith, we would tell you, we would exhort you, we would plead with you, and if you refused to change, we would excommunicate you. I promise you we would. And we haven't. Do you not see how critically this issue is, how critical it is for your assurance? We, we're all... We're all post-Puritans, aren't we? We've all learned from the Puritans the vital importance of the heart, which is one of the great blessings of our Reformed Puritan heritage. And yet, one of the mistakes of some, not all, some of our Puritan forefathers in the faith was to neglect the significance of the public liturgical affirmations of somebody's genuine faith in Christ. And so sometimes you see our Puritan friends and Jonathan Edwards among them, who's kind of American Puritan, disappearing down this rabbit hole of self-examination and introspection. And I, I can find nothing in myself that is worthy. Of course you can't find anything in yourself that's worthy, for goodness sake. We come to Christ as those who need forgiveness. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And you're here. You, you are right to draw the conclusion that because you've not been cut off from this liturgical assembly, that therefore you are saved. It is vitally important that you know that we would excommunicate somebody of whom that was not true. Otherwise, where is the concrete blessing in you being here? So, towards a sinful person himself, towards the church, and of course towards Christ, we want to preserve the honour of Christ in the world, it is not acceptable that the body of Christ should be known to be a safe space for people to carry on unrepentantly sinning. And tragically, the church is known in that way because, I'll just say it, its pastors do not take seriously and its elders do not take seriously this responsibility. And if they did, the church on earth would testify to the purity of Christ more consistently. And of course, then, Christ would have a more purified bride, ready to be unveiled for him, Revelation 21, verse 2, on the last day. So for all these reasons, uh, excommunication is an important aspect of our formal ecclesiology. So what would somebody have to do? Third big question. <coughs> what would, for what sins... My Bible and theology class were at this point looking at me a little nervously, remembering how many homeworks they'd missed <laughs> and how seriously Pastor Jeffrey takes Bible and theology homework. Physics homework is nearly as important, but not quite, I've told them. Um, and here again, there are some very significant misunderstandings among biblical, reformed, evangelical Christians. Excommunication is not carried out for particularly bad sins. It's not carried out for sins against the Ten Commandments. It's not carried out for particularly public sins. It's not carried out for sins which were capital crimes under the Old Covenant. It's not carried out for sins which are culturally 
distasteful. It's not carried out for sins which are also crimes. I mean, it might be carried out in connection with any of those, but just being in any one of those categories is not the reason why excommunication is carried out. There is one sin, and one sin only, for which excommunication is carried out. The technical term for the harmatological, that is to do with sin, grounds of excommunication is the sin of contumacy. Contumacy. Contumacy means stubborn refusal to repent of any sin after it has been addressed specifically, repeatedly, repeatedly, persistently by the church, by her officers. The issue is not so much what the sin is, the issue is the stubborn, high-handed refusal to repent of it. The fatal sin, and this is the title of today's sermon, which didn't make the print of the order of worship due to my scurrying around to try and gather all these things together on Friday afternoon. The fatal sin of stubbornness. That's the ground of excommunication, and that only is the ground. The stubborn, unrefusal to repent that technically is known as contumacy. Now, mercifully, this is rare. I have to say, in, how long now? My first uh, post working at a church uh, was in 2000. So that's 24 years. Four of those were, I was pastor, I was at seminary. Um, but all that time I was going to churches and obviously was kind of on the inside of um, some of the pastoral conversations. I have never once been involved in an actual excommunication. Uh, at Emmanuel in London, we came this close once, this close, very close, and um, mercifully, um, after making the announcement to the congregation that this might be about to happen, when I went to the man's house that afternoon to plead with him one more time, we had a very constructive conversation. He returned to the Lord. But it is not unknown, and it is important that we understand it rightly. There are a number of texts of Scripture. Of course, you're all thinking of Matthew 18, you might be thinking of 1 Corinthians 5, that's the text that John Frame is uh, alluding to in his discussion of this. There are actually other texts, Old Testament texts, that are relevant. Numbers 14, rebellious Israel consigned to die in the wilderness. Uh, think of the book of Judges, that's a series of generational excommunications, in a sense, before the people are again restored. Uh, 1 Samuel uh, 2 and 3, Eli and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, in a sense, there's a judici judicial sentence passed there. There are many other texts, but one that is not often recognized. A text that speaks very loudly and clearly to this issue is the one before us today. Well, actually, it's the long section of the book of Acts from chapter 6, verse 8, all the way down to chapter 7, verse 60. This is the so-called Stephen episode in the book of Acts. Now, you've got to get this in perspective. This episode, just look at it. In my Bible, it occupies... Five columns, more than a double-page spread. If this were a book of the Bible on its own, just this episode, 
it would be longer than Obadiah, Habakkuk, Nahum, Jonah, Haggai, Jude, Titus, and 2 Thessalonians. It would be longer than Philemon and 2nd and 3rd John all put together. It is huge. It's easily the longest sermon in the book of Acts. It's twice as long as Luke's record of Jesus' Sermon on the Plain, the Lucan parallel to Matthew's Sermon on the Mount. This is a, to you know, put it in contemporary terms, a pretty big deal. And why would Luke bother to go to all this length? Expensive parchment. Think of how briefly, by contrast, he summarizes Paul's Areopagus speech. Just a handful of verses, a tiny fraction of this. What's the big deal? The answer is, this speech is the formal decree of excommunication for Old Covenant Israel. Just let that sink in for a second, because we're going to explore this in a bit of detail. I realize that's a statement that you might not have heard before. It might be a surprise to you. I'm going to be explaining and justifying that claim. This is the formal statement that yeah, we're done. This is over. For the old covenant way of life and people of God. And what I want to do is to, we're not in a rush through this, okay? This would be a mistake, I think, to try and preach the whole thing in a, in a single week. Apart from anything else, the reading would take 10 minutes. Um, what I want to do today is orient us, treat it like a book in its own right, orient us to it, look at some details in the section I read, and along the way we will draw attention to some practical implications. Some practical implications that have to do with this process of, of discipline, let's call it that, that the church is required to maintain. So first, how can I justify that statement that this is the formal decree of Old Covenant Israel's excommunication. Let me explain. Zoom out as far as you can. Consider the shape of the whole Bible. Consider it from the last text that Pastor Shaw preached on, from Genesis 12 onwards, realizing that 1 to 11 is obviously leads into that with Adam and Noah and so on, but from Genesis 12 onwards, for the whole of the Old Testament, what we have is a narrative of God's repeated, lavish grace to his people Israel. Is it not? Think of the kindness of the Lord. Again and again, the Lord reaching out to his people, making promises to them, building them into a community for him, speaking to, him, speaking to them, blessing them with his presence, blessing them with his law. And again and again and again and again and again, the old covenant people of God rejected their Lord. Again and again they're called to repent, and again and again they refuse. There's always a righteous remnant, and there's always a rebuilding process somewhere in the background, but the community as a whole was a rebellious and faithless people as a nation from beginning to end. And it leads to the crisis of the exile. And the worst part of the exile, you know, the worst thing that happened to the people during the exile was not the people of God being sent away from the land. That's not the worst thing that happened. The worst thing that happened during the exile was God departing from his people. It's bad enough that you should have to leave the land, you Israelites, but worse that the living God should leave you. Ezekiel 10 and 11. You've got this appalling picture of God leaving the temple, never to return. When the temple is rebuilt in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, you do not see a repeat of the theophany of 1 Kings and of Exodus 40 when the Lord moves in. You don't see it. It's over. Until 
the Lord returns to his people. That's what the coming of Christ is. The coming of Christ, this is like a lesson in biblical theology, okay? The coming of Christ is the Lord's return to his people after the exile. Israel might be in the land in 6 BC, but the Lord is not with them. The Lord is not among them. The temple has been abandoned. It's Jesus who is the presence of the Lord coming to tabernacle, John 1, with his people to return to Israel. And of course, (coughs) pardon me, some Israelites accepted that. Some Israelites welcomed him. (coughs) Not all, and certainly not the nation as a whole, but many Israelites welcomed Jesus. Now, as they think of Luke's first volume, Luke's gospel, Jesus is going through the villages and in uh, Israel preaching the gospel. And again and again, he's rejected. Israel is rejecting their Messiah, their Lord. He draws near to the temple in Luke 21, and he, he prophesies the destruction of the temple. What's that? That is a warning of the final judgment upon Israel as a religious community in covenant with God. He promises that this generation will not pass away, and it's in the parallels in Mark 13, Matthew 24, until all these things have been accomplished, and 40 years later they were. So that's a warning of final judgment on the old covenant people of Israel. And they still refused to repent, and they still opposed him, and they still crucified him. And so now you get to the beginning of the book of Acts, and you think, what's going to happen next? And Jesus is ascended to his throne. The apostles and the church, in the first few chapters, start to go out and preach the gospel of the king, to announce that the king is enthroned in Zion, and to preach to Israel that they're still welcome to come. You know, this Jesus, whom you crucified, has been made Lord in Christ. Well, brothers, what should we do? Repent, for crying out loud. You might be getting pretty close to the wire, brothers. Acts 2. And again and again, you've got the apostles preaching and they encounter opposition in chapters 3 to 5. From who? From the people of Israel themselves and their leaders. And although you've got some people turning to Christ from that community, you do still get the widespread rejection. Now, then you get something very interesting in Acts chapter 5. When all the apostles are imprisoned, I made reference to this last, uh, last when I spoke on um, Acts 6, 1 to 7, and also before, of course, Um, Gamaliel, remember he stands up in the Sanhedrin and said, guys, we shouldn't be trying to oppose this. We should just see what happens. Because if this is from God, if this is from God, then it won't be like all the other religious movements that last about 20 minutes and then the, the leader is killed and all the followers are scattered. If it's from God, the Lord will preserve it. And you don't want to be opposing something that God is behind. And everyone says, that's a brilliant idea. Why don't we do that? So now what they're all doing, they're all watching to see, will the church survive? Will it persevere? Will it last? Because if it is, we all know, because wise old Gamaliel, Paul's teacher, Saul, Paul's teacher, set the Gamaliel test. And so what happens? The very next section, you've got a crisis in the church which threatens to tear it apart. Hebraic and uh, Hellenistic widows and arguing with each other and their families arguing with each other. Is this going to be the moment where the church goes the way of all those other religious movements? No, it's not, because deacons. The church passes the Gamaliel test in Acts 6, 1-7. Everybody on the Sanhedrin knows now. Everybody. We all agreed this is the test, right? If the church manages to survive, 
and not be scattered and broken apart, then we know it's from God. And in fact, that's what happens. Chapter 6, verse 7. The word of God continued to increase. The number of disciples multiplied. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith because a great many of them realized, my goodness, it's from God. We, got, we, we can't oppose this. And so now you're thinking, is this the moment? <coughs> is this the critical moment when the priests of Israel and the Sanhedrin and the the rulers, they gather together and they say, guys, we've been wrong. <laughs> Call a fast, proclaim a sacred assembly, gather the scattered outcasts of our people and let us come together to confess our sins. Let us come together as a people, as a nation, and let us renew the covenant which we broke with Christ and through Christ, the new covenant that he announced. Is this the moment where it's going to happen? There are no more excuses. This is it. And so what happens? Chapter 6, verse 8. Stephen, full of grace and power, terms used to describe the apostles elsewhere in the book of Acts, he's acting like an apostle, was doing great wonders and signs. Who does wonders and signs? Moses. The signs and wonders guy is Moses. So here's Stephen. The new Moses has come to declare and carry out the wonders of God among us. Is this going to be the moment when old covenant Israel finally lays aside its idolatry, lays aside its hostility to the Lord? Is this the moment when the man returns for whom Jesus died? No, it's not. Let's jump into the passage I read earlier. Look at it with me. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called. There's a kind of irony there, isn't there, in Luke's narration. Yeah, are they free? <laughs> yeah, they're free to reject the Messiah. What kind of freedom is that? The synagogue of the freedmen and of the Cyrenians and Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia, they rose up and disputed with Stephen. No, at one level, again, you want to have a... Let's think the best. Maybe they're, maybe they're wanting to discuss, like the Bereans later in the book of Acts. We've got some questions for you. You're bringing some strange things to our ears, and we want to understand what they mean, as the Athenians said. But no, that's not what it is. They couldn't withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So instead of saying, we've been wrong, every single thing we say, he's got a biblical answer to it. What they did... Verse 11 was the same thing that everybody always did, does when they're backed into a corner by the truth. They make up lies. They secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. There's no blasphemy. <laughs> We're there to get somebody to make that up. It's, of course, it's echoes of Naboth, isn't it? We've seen before this kind of cheap shot tactic, Ahab and Jezebel, of trying to frame an innocent man by having false accusers come before the court. 12, verse 12, they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council and they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Because if you're going to make false accusations, they have to have enough 
superficial resemblance to the truth to do damage. You can't just say something that's so outlandish that nobody will believe it. But Jesus did prophesy the downfall of the temple because he is the new temple, and he did change the customs. Yeah, well, he certainly said that you shouldn't be doing that Corban thing, and you shouldn't be doing that polish the outside of the cup and the plate thing. Mark 7. Yeah, he did. He did say he changed those customs, and also he came to fulfill or to fill full all of the truth that's in the law of Moses. Yeah, he's, I guess he is changed. But they're deploying the description in a way which is deliberately calculated to be misunderstood in a way which amounts to a charge on which Stephen will be executed. You see what's happened? It's the stubbornness. Uh, what happens by the end of chapter 8 is it's not just this synagogue of the freedmen and a few hangers-on, it's the whole of the community that, that gathers together against the church. But this is... This is the crack in the dam, so to speak. And notice, this is, again, it's one of these lessons that we learn from this text about what is the thing that warrants excommunication? It is the persistent stubbornness, the persistent refusal to repent. It's the stubbornness in the face of multiple exhortations and multiple warnings it's the stubbornness in the face of all the evidence, all the signs, all the wonders. It's the stubbornness in the face of the repeated pleading. Think of Peter's sermon in Acts 2 and verse 40. With many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, pleading with them, saying, please save yourselves from this crooked generation. It's the stubbornness in the face of what all your wise friends say. And somebody who gets to this point will always have foolish friends. But they also have wise friends. Wise friends whom they ignore. Gamaliel. It's a stubbornness in the face of what all your wise friends do. What makes you so different that you get to resist the Messiah? A great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Why won't you, you synagogue of the freedmen? You think you know better? Well, it's not that they know better, it's just that they just don't want to repent. They want to carry on doing whatever it is that they're doing for whatever reason that they have. And I have to say, you, you see this in the circumstances, a number of which I have been involved in, which have got a hair's breadth away. The persistent, stubborn refusal to repent in the face of the obvious. Fascinating, verse 15. They're gazing at him. And all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, I don't know what you think when you see that. It doesn't mean like all the little two-year-olds here. He's got such an angelic little face. That's not what it means. I mean, it, uh, some commentators suggest it's uh, like a face that's beheld the glory of God, which is true. Um, but there's more, of that, more than that going on. The, the angel reference is very significant because of what Stephen is about to do. He is about to propound a reading of Israel's history. He's about to preach the law to them, in effect. Law in the sense of Torah, teaching. Israel's own experience and history. And he is being depicted here as a divine messenger because angels are the ones who deliver the law. And it mentions that specifically a couple of times 
during this chapter. So verse 30, chapter 7, verse 30, um, it was when Moses was 40 years old, sorry, 40 years have passed, and an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire and a bush. It's an angel that first brings God's message to him. Specifically, it's the law of God, or the teaching of God, the Torah of God, which comes to the people by an angel through Moses. Look at chapter 7, verse 53. You who received the law as delivered by angels and didn't keep it. So there's angels at the end, the old covenant Torah of Moses. There's an angel at the beginning, Stephen. Face of an angel. Uh, and you see this elsewhere, to be uh, under the law in Hebrews chapter 2 is to be subject to the angels or made a little while lower than the angels under angelic supervision because the angels deliver the law. Galatians 3.19, the law was put into effect through angels by an intermediary. And of course that makes sense of Moses' shining face in Exodus 34 when he's coming down the mountain and the Israelites can't bear to look at his face because he's encountered the glory of the Lord, he's had the law of God revealed by an angel, and now here stands another one, a new Moses, a new angelic messenger speaking this word to the people of God. But when we come to the content of that word, we notice some unnerving things. I think it was George Bernard Shaw who, uh, in the introduction to a a play. He, he made a very scathing reference to this. It's, no, a tedious recitation of the history of Israel with which his hearers were presumably no less familiar than he. As though all that Stephen is doing is just giving them a history lesson. Well, he's giving them a history lesson. Um, but he is giving them a history lesson which goes completely against their view of their history. The Israelite unfaithful self-assessment was something like this. We have a magnificent history. The patriarchs, all their faithfulness, the law, the very oracles of God, Romans 3.2, the temple, God's dwelling place on earth. We are the people. Surely we are the people. And when the Messiah comes, he won't come from Nazareth. He won't come from Galilee. When the Messiah comes, he'll come to us in our temple. And in contrast, Stephen's history lesson calls attention to how in each of those three elements of their history, patriarchs, Moses, and finally the temple, they actually have just revealed their rebellion against the Lord and their rejection of him. And we'll look at this in more detail in the coming weeks, but I want to show you just briefly, just look with me. Uh, chapter 7, verse 9. Patriarchs. Let's talk about the patriarchs. Jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. Doesn't look so great now, does it? Remember that? Oh yeah, we're trying to forget about that bit of the uh, Genesis thing. What about the law? Well, you've got this long catalogue of disobedience from chapter and uh, the sort of middle of chapter 7, verse 25 onwards. Moses supposed that his people would understand, but they didn't want to talk to him. They hated him. And you've got this long description. Uh, think of verse 39. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to go back to Egypt. And then even the temple, this magnificent dwelling place for God on earth. But even when it was built, Solomon knew that God will not dwell on earth. Verse 48. The Most High does not dwell in houses built by hands. 
Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house are you going to build for me anyway? So you see what Stephen is doing? He's upturning their view of their own history. Now it is vital to understand this. And this is one of the painful things to say. When you're talking to somebody who gets this close, the sign that things are going to end badly is when their reading of their history is so starkly at variance with the truth about their history. Somebody who is stubbornly refusing to repent will tell a different story. They will tell a story of how they've been misunderstood, of how really they needed help, of how they're a victim. And it will have elements of truth within it, but they won't tell the story of their persistent refusal to listen to counsel. They won't tell the story of their persistent rejection of help, and it won't tell the story of their sin. I'm a victim. That will be their story. That will be the story they will tell their pastors and their elders, and it will be the story they try to tell you. And it's a lie. It's a lie that Stephen unmasks in the case of Old Covenant Israel's version of their story, which is why they respond as they did. Uh, This is verse 51 to 53. This is the climax of Stephen's speech. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised. Now, let me tell you, that is quite a thing to say to an Israelite. Uncircumcised in hearts and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit, the spirit of repentance. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? You're just like them. And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you've now betrayed and murdered, you, who received the law that was delivered by angels and have not kept it. And it's interesting, a lot of commentators mark the end of the speech there, Again, my friend Matthew Sleeman, who's done his PhD, sorry, his second PhD on on this book, um, points out that the speech continues in the same sort of way that the speech in Acts 2 continues. There's an interjection about the reaction of the people. But whereas in Acts chapter 2, you've got, brothers, what should we do? We're cut to the heart. And Peter says, repent. Here, verse 54, When they heard these things, they were enraged, which is the final thing that somebody who doesn't want to repent will do. They will be angry with you and very likely angry with me, much more than with you, for confronting them. And gnashed their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and he continued with his conclusion. Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. What on earth is Jesus doing standing? Every priest stands, Hebrews 10, but when this priest had finished, he sat down. He's finished his priestly work. Why would he be standing? Well, it's because he's not about to do priestly work. We've got no confession of sin here. We've got no repentance. You stand in a courtroom to deliver the verdict. That's why Jesus is standing. When he says, 
Jesus is standing, it's because he is about to pass sentence on you, Old Covenant Israelites, a sentence which they abundantly justify, first by stoning him, and then second, at chapter 8, verse 1, there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered. So you see, the church is scattered, but they're scattered because of their fidelity to the truth, and they will not back down. And it's through that scattering, actually, that the gospel goes out of Jerusalem, away from these people who have just had sentence passed. This is the decree of excommunication. The final judgment will fall bang on schedule when Jesus said it would. This generation will not pass away until all these things have been fulfilled. Look, I am absolutely confident that Stephen would rather have been remembered for preaching any of his other many sermons. We know he preached a lot of sermons. I bet he was a great preacher. And he's remembered for this one. I would rather preach anything else, especially because church discipline doesn't always have the effect we desire. We, we desire that it should bring a sinner to repentance, and it doesn't always. It didn't here. But fidelity to the truth means that not hastily, not joyfully, but after long, long periods of pleading and exhorting and rebuking and challenging, and then finally, with tears in our eyes, we have to say what's true. You're not in communion with God. You're not. And that's what excommunication, in all its horror, means. Let's pray, shall we? Merciful Father, Spare thou them that confess their faults. And we pray for all of your people, wherever they are in the world, who have strayed grievously, that you would spare them. Please. In Jesus' name. Amen.